This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Our world is no longer one of simple problems. Even when the task calls for a discrete effort, it is situated within a complex system. Complexity isn't a temporary, transitional thing. It is a type of challenge. In fact, complexity is going to continue to deepen and widen in the coming years. Regardless of the sector, from government to private corporations, leaders today continue to face serious, seemingly intractable challenges that go to the core of effective governance and leadership, testing the very form, structure, and capacity required to meet these complex challenges head on. In certain instances, the scope, nature, and extent of these challenges eliminate the notion of quick fixes or one-size-fits-all solutions In government, the resources needed to properly address these wicked complex problems often transcend the capacity of any single agency and go beyond established parameters and institutional strictures. How can the complexity formula help us tackle complex challenges? How does engineering serendipity help address complexity? And how can we translate opportunity into action? I'll explore these questions and more with David Benjamin, co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. Well, David, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Michael. David, first off, I'd like to talk about complexity. What is complexity and what are the conditions that make something complex? Well, we talk about uh, complexity as a class of challenge type. Um, and really, we, we like to define it by contrasting it with simple and complicated challenges. So simple and complicated challenges are basically solved problems. Um, there's a known solution. It's a matter of executing a known checklist. And you get repeatable and predictable results when you do that. Um, but when you're dealing with something that's complex, it's not in that category at all. It's categorically different. Um, it's different every time. It's nonlinear. There is no checklist. There are a lot of moving parts and interdependencies that you can't really detect. Uh, Things are moving much faster. There's a lot of change. There are human factors. And so it's very different um, from those problems that we can solve just by executing a checklist. And David, in the book, you illustrate um, the differences between the complicated and the complex. Could you elaborate on that? So, uh, for example, planning a wedding 
is complicated. You can get a wedding planner to take you through the steps of getting your wedding prepared. But having a happy marriage is complex. Um, installing an accounting system, you'd probably say that's complicated. I, I can hire somebody who's done it many times before and they'll do for me what they've done for many other people. Whereas taking out cost um, is going to be a very unique kind of challenge every time I confront it based on whatever organization I'm in, whatever situation I'm in, the time, the technology and everything else that's going on that day. Um, instilling you know, procedures for IT is probably complicated, a step-by-step way to engage and activate IT on a problem versus a challenge like IT modernization, which would be uh, far more complex than that in terms of the moving pieces and the scope and scale and uniqueness of the challenge to every uh, system that tries to get at that. Uh, David, can complex challenges be solved with the tools used to solve complicated tasks? So uh, if you go back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about complicated tasks, there are known solutions. Um, They can be solved time and time again by basically executing a known set of steps. But complicated challenges require some level of expertise to execute those steps. So the way that you go about solving a complicated challenge is either you have the expertise or you find an expert, you hire them to solve it for you. They might have to interview a few people to configure their known solution, Um, but they will solve it for you. And they've done it many times before and they'll do it many times again. But when you're dealing with something that's complex, you're dealing with something that's essentially new each time you confront it. Um, So a growth challenge, you know, is a complex, complex challenge and you might have gone through something related to growth 10 years ago, but it's going to be very different this time. So if you try to reach out and find an expert in growth, um, they're going to be just as confounded by the new situation as you are. And in fact, um, more confounded because they know less about your situation. Uh, So when you try to go about solving something that's complex, by using the complicated approach of engaging an expert, uh, you're actually introducing all sorts of additional challenges into the scenario, and you're just not going to get at solutions. And as a follow-up, David, why does complexity require leaders to develop and adopt new ways of thinking and problem-solving? So really, we talk about the need to adopt an abundance mindset when it comes to the talent that's required to solve something complex. So again, when you're dealing with something that's complicated, there's a scarcity model there. There are scarce experts and I need to hire one of the few people who know how to solve this and have done so many times before. That's a scarcity mindset. But as you think about your complex challenge, you really need to take on a mindset that, you know, the answers lie inside and around my organization within my ecosystem. And it's just a matter of recognizing that I have an abundance of talent that I can tap into. Um, I don't need to outsource this to someone else. And in fact, outsourcing this to someone else means that um, they're going to get really nicely steeped in my challenge. Um, They're going to figure something out for me, but my people are not going to understand or believe that that's necessarily the right solution. And that's why um, we see real struggles with execution on those kinds of solutions that have been developed, let's say, by a uh, management consultant who may have developed an excellent solution, but again, without um, the co-creation 
of the people who are going to be you know, required to execute it. You raise an interesting point in your book. Why is slow and steady a recipe for disaster in today's world where complexity is a dominant force? And perhaps you can tell us how does the use of the tortoise and hare fable illustrate this point? Uh, complexity is accelerating. Change is accelerating. Complexity isn't coming at us sort of one factor at a time. Complexity that you're dealing with in your organization is probably reflective of many things changing all at once. Um, workforce habits, uh, workforce dem- demographics, customer uh, needs and, and expectations, technology, uh, so on and so forth. And with all of that happening all at once, um, it happens very fast and it changes very fast. So whereas we grew up with the fable of the tortoise and the hare and how slow and steady wins the race, uh, we talk about in the book how uh, the hare, if you think of complexity as the hare, it's not going to take a nap under the tree and wait for you to catch up through your diligent and steady hard work. Um, it really is a it really is a an impetus now to figure out how to you know be the hare and be the tortoise at the same time in terms of, you know, that, that thoughtful approach to solutions. So whereas people are used to the saying, you need to go slow to go fast, that's still true. Uh, the call now, though, is to go fast at going slow to go fast. David, what is the law of requisite variety? What does it mean to say that only variety destroys variety? Yeah, just so your listeners understand, we're, we are not making any of this up. Many of the things and concepts that we're talking about come from complexity science and from some really uh, smart thinkers of the past. So Ross Ashby is a guy that probably nobody's heard of, uh, but this is actually called Ashby's Law, the law of requisite variety. And it says only variety destroys variety. Um, And it's actually a natural law in the sense that it's completely and always true and you experience this all the time. Uh, It it basically says that when you're dealing with something complex with many moving parts and um, a high variety of states it can be in, the only way to deal with that is to bring a matching amount of variety in terms of uh, the people and tools that you're going to deploy to solve that complexity. And so... Uh, if you think about, for example, a kindergarten class where there's, you know, one or two teachers and maybe 28 five-year-olds, there is a variety mismatch uh, in that room. And so it doesn't mean that the uh, statement only variety destroys variety is no longer true. In fact, what you see is that it's completely true that teachers only have enough variety to deal with a handful of kids who are most uh, needing the attention and largely what happens in kindergarten classrooms is the rest of the children just don't get an equal amount of attention because the teachers don't have the variety to deal with all of that. Uh, Again, if you think of sort of a multi-dimensional, highly interdependent set of factors that are making up whatever the complexity is, again, the law of requisite variety says you have to find a high variety group that can match that. And that really means all perspectives that matter um, from the people on the front lines who are maybe sitting in a rural office experiencing things directly that nobody else experiences to people in a head office function who are more aware of general trends and, and less connected to what's going on, you know, on the street every day. 
getting all of those perspectives and everyone in between and hierarchical variety and functional variety all together all at once, uh, that's what we're talking about with a high variety group. And when you do that, um, they're able to bring into the room with them all of the various moving parts. Uh, they're aware of you know, each of them, some of the interdependencies, some of the things that have been tried and failed, some of the things that are working. And collectively, when you can get them putting those pieces together, A, you're going to end up with a solution that reflects all of those factors. Um, but the side benefit, and probably the most important benefit, is that those people who have co-created both an understanding of what's going on and what the right thing is to do, they will own the solution. They will buy into it. They will believe it's right. Um, and they will work, sorry, they will work very, very hard to prove to you that it's the right solution. And, and so that's why you'll see much more execution. Would you elaborate on the use of the lion on the desk analogy in your book, Cracking Complexity? How does it further underscore the complexity challenge and the meaning of requisite variety? Yeah, so the, the analogy or metaphor that we use um, is imagine you're walking into your office one morning, uh, you know, regular day you think, and you open your office door and take one step into your office and you see a ferocious lion sitting on your desk, licking its, chop, its chops and staring hungrily at you. What would you do? And if you're like most people, in the blink of an eye, you will be um, slamming the door and running in the other direction. And so the reason we talk about that is because as a human being with an integrated nervous system, a lot happens in that blink of an eye. Um, you sense that there's a lion on your desk. You absorb the implications of that. This isn't just a stuffed animal. There shouldn't be a lion here. Lions are ferocious and eat people. So you absorb those implications. You think through your options very quickly, you know, and you don't call in other advisors to help uh, inform your thinking. Uh, you just very quickly think about what should I do and, and land on a course of action. You decide on a course of action and then you enact that course of action. And all of that happened in the blink of an eye. So you sensed, you absorbed, you thought, you decided and you acted. And again, you can do that so quickly and you do that all the time uh, because you have an integrated nervous system. So when you think about organizations, small organizations, large organizations, uh, very, very large organizations, those functions, sensing, absorbing, thinking, and deciding specifically, those functions are fragmented and distributed. And they might be distributed geographically or hierarchically or across business units or divisions or departments. And so the process of recognizing that there's a lion on your desk because the sensors have, have recognized that and communicated that onto the um, absorbers who can then kind of think through and analyze the implications of that, you know, and pass it over to the thinkers who are going to surface options and consider the merits of those options, ultimately to give those to the deciders so that they can, um, you know, approve a course of action. And then ultimately all of that going to a set of actors who are meant to do something about that, um, but again are several steps away from the initial stimulus of the lion. That takes a long time and there's a lot of room for broken telephone. And so organizations don't necessarily notice uh, in whole that there's a threat in front of them or an opportunity. 
And even when they do, it takes a long, long time to get to action. So again, in terms of requisite variety, as you're thinking through what's the right variety of people who collectively can get me to action quickly, we talk about the need to get the sensors, absorbers, thinkers, deciders, and actors in one place together and treat that as one effort that has to happen very, very quickly. David, what prompted your interest in writing your book, Cracking Complexity, and why is the complexity formula needed? Uh, The book is actually um, a reflection of our last 17 years working with leaders uh, across many industries, um, across government, across not-for-profits, dealing with complex challenges, uh, learning as we went, um, applying a consistent uh, formula uh, no matter what the, the challenge looked like or no matter what industry was involved. involved. And then as we sat down to write the book, A, um, recognizing the need to equip leaders you know, around the world to be able to address complex challenges differently if you know, we have any chance of getting in front of everything that's going on in our world. Um, and B, just sort of taking everything that we know and observed and learned through basically 17 years of field research and deconstructing that into something that um, makes a lot of sense and adds a lot of value to leaders of any kind of organization and even um, for people individually who are facing complexity in their personal lives. What is the complexity formula? We will explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join him each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with David Benjamin, co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. David, the complexity formula you outline in your book has 10 steps to crack complexity. Um, I'd like to explore the first five in this segment. Why or how important is it to acknowledge the complexity and how does a leader determine whether a challenge is actually complex. So, yeah, really, we talk about the need for leaders to get comfortable with recognizing complexity and um, acknowledging that they need a different approach to solving it. And when we talk about getting comfortable, 
that's because it is not a failure of leadership to realize that something is bigger than you are or is bigger than the leadership team is. In terms of that law of requisite variety, it would say you have to go much broader than the leadership team to find solutions. And that's not something that people are easily comfortable with, that uh, this is bigger than the smart people who are supposed to be at the helm of the ship. So you need to acknowledge that. You need to um, recognize that this isn't just complicated. This isn't something where I can just outsource it to someone else or find an expert in house or set up a task force to solve this. Because again, they don't have the variety either. And the way you um, recognize those kinds of things is by asking yourself um, some questions about the challenge. Like, is this the same as last time I saw a challenge like this? Are there a lot of moving parts? Are there a lot of knowns, unknowns, and unknown unknowns potentially that would affect how I would solve this? Um, does this feel more like art than science? Are there a lot of human factors to be dealt with? Uh, and I, I like this little test as well. If I were to hire somebody to, to solve this for me, would they fix price the solution or would they go time and materials to reflect the fact that they don't really know what they're wading into until they're in it. Those are some of the tests we tell leaders they can apply to think about this. So once you acknowledge the complexity, David, why is it essential to define the challenge in the form of a question? And what recommendations do you offer to help leaders construct a compelling and concise and clear question? So first off, I'd say questions... Um, represent an open invitation for discussion. I mean, again, if they're open questions. And that's much more compelling to people than a statement. Um, and, you know, the question mark at the end is a placeholder for a great depth of conversation if it's a good question. So we tell people to start by writing down what their question is. And, and of course, um, again, through the experience of having done this many times, we're able to equip leaders with good tools to think that through. And so as they're thinking through what the question might be, we give them guidance um, like make sure it's compelling, make sure it's an interesting question. Um, it's a good thing if the question makes people at least a little, little bit uncomfortable. Um, make sure that it's clear what the scope of, of the conversation and the challenges that you're trying to uh, catalyze. Um, but at the same time, make sure it's not biased. And there's lots of different ways to bias a question without meaning to. Um, make sure there's a call for action. It should be action-based. And very importantly, and we've seen this done wrong as many times as we've seen it done right, set an aspirational goal. Let the people who are going to be asked that question know what it means to have really found success in answering it. And that usually means setting the bar higher than it usually is. And again, challenging people to think out of the box because current course and speed isn't going to hit that as aspirational goal. So as you can imagine, um, it's not a five-minute exercise to write a question, to write a really, really good question. Um, and, and so the, the, what can go wrong is um, pulling back from doing all the right things in your question because you're afraid of um, people going to react to it or um, you're afraid that the question might make you look vulnerable or bad. Or as I said, you might bake in some unexpected bias and the last thing you want to do is give your question to a committee because they will turn it into a lowest common denominator, least offensive possible question. 
and all of its edge and bite will be gone. Identifying the requisite variety of people to match and absorb complexity uh, is step three in your complexity formula. Uh, can you offer insights for how leaders can best choose the requisite variety? And how did you come up with your 12 zones? Yeah, let me start with the, the zones. So really, as we, again, as we've done our field research for the last 17 years, we've certainly observed, um, you know, when variety is, is right on point and, and when, a, you know, there are gaps in the variety. And we've been able to sort of think about almost the geographic landscape, but I don't mean geographic, but, um, you know, the, the domains of variety. Um, and that's what we mean by the 12 zones. So very high level. Um, I think about the domains as sort of the system. So whether it's your organization or it might be several organizations, the system that's facing the challenge and trying to find solutions. The environment in which that system exists is the second domain. And then there's a, a third domain, which is the challenge itself. Um, and so as you think about each of those things, the system, its environment, and its challenge, we segment that into, into 12 zones. And so, as an example, within your system, within your organization, the zones um, include like a cross-section of the operation, and it includes the people who are in the field, and it includes the people who are in um, head office playing roles to think about the future, and it includes people who represent the past and have a lot of history, and so on and so forth. So that's where the 12 zones come from. And as you get from inside your system or inside your organization, to the environment, um, it becomes very, very important to be aggressive and aggressively thinking about variety, uh, not just including the same old, uh, you know, the usual suspects, but really thinking about, you know, which of our partners is really going to challenge us and, and bring some interesting perspectives that we don't have in-house. And if I could include a customer, um, which would I include and how would I get them ready to participate appropriately? And you know, this is one of my favorite things to, to have involved in the variety group is to really think about parallel universes, whether that's another industry or maybe it's another country, if you're talking about government, for example, where this problem has been faced and maybe solved or maybe not solved. But who could we bring in that just brings in a completely different uh, lens on us? And as importantly, um, no stake, no personal stake in solutions that we're going to be looking for so that we're getting their honest, you know, and true feedback as we go through the path of trying to discover the right answers. So, yeah, as a follow-up, I wanted to talk about the 13 characteristics. What are they? But more importantly, what are some of the common mistakes when selecting requisite variety? So having made your way through the 12 zones, there's a lot of mistakes you can make along the way. And really one of the first that we noticed was groups that were too political about who they chose. So, you know, we can't just choose one business unit, GM, they all have to be there. And all of a sudden you've got over-representation over of one, um, you know, very similar set of perspectives and you have undercut the amount of variety you can find efficiently. So don't get political about who you choose. Um, definitely think about how to get the external voice in the room. Uh, so another mistake is to just be too internally focused and too afraid to open the kimono in front of others. Um, so even if you can't bring in a customer and really can't, genuinely can't be that frank in front of the customer, then 
then at least find a proxy who, who knows the customer well and can represent that point of view. Um, another classic mistake is, is avoiding the cynics and the difficult people. And again, our guidance there is if you avoid them now, then they will be lurking afterwards, uh, ready to undercut whatever the solution is. It's much better to have them co-creating the solution. Um, and then you will convert them from sort of adversary to advocate in terms of execution. Uh, usual suspects, actually in government, what we've seen as well is that you um, very carefully choose a specific person and then that person can't make it and they choose a delegate uh, and you get the wrong perspective or you get the wrong, um, you know, personality. And, uh, and so you really need to make it clear as you're bringing people, no, you've been hand chosen. Let me know if you can't come, I'll choose someone else. And so it's those kinds of things. When I, when I mentioned the 13 characteristics, I just very quickly want to mention that this is not just about um, getting, you know, roles and functions and hierarchy in the room. It's also about a mix of human beings. And so we also guide leaders to think very heavily and, and thoroughly about the personalities they're including um, and the uh, stake people have and the authority and influence that they wield and uh, make sure that you've got variety there as well. To the, to the extent that there are even some very specific personality types that are rare um, that, you know, you might invite a, a person just because they are, for example, what we call a code breaker. They are that personality type that will sit and listen for, you know, two days of meetings and then say one thing that really synthesizes everything that happened and turns the entire group on its side in terms of their thinking about a challenge. It's all of that when we're talking about variety. David, your book, Cracking Complexity, refers to localizing the solvers. Can you tell us more about that and why is it so important for those who are tackling complex challenges to be in the same room and have face-to-face -face contact? It's, science says uh, the connections are very different when people are in the room together and the human experience the, uh, the, the body language, the nuances in words, the focus that you experience when you're in the room uh, with someone else, uh, you're much less likely to, to pull up your phone, for example, when somebody is talking in the room to you than you are if you're sitting uh, on the other end of a phone um, and you know, have your digital device with you. Uh, you can put people on mute when you're connecting over the phone. And, and we found even vi uh, video technology you know, in its current state uh, this is not to say technology won't change, but even, you know, when you have people's faces on the screen in front of you, it's just not the same as being in the same room. So, David, you have these folks who are solving problems, but uh, what if they don't have the authority or support to do it? How do they make the case for getting people involved and taking up their time? Actually, this is um, also one of the reasons that we wrote the book is is because when people understand um, the opportunity of being handpicked to be part of a high variety group solving probably one of the most important challenges in the organization. Um, then they come and they don't need much convincing. And we've seen situations where, um, in fact, the problem becomes that too many people hear that this is happening and, and are wondering why they're not involved and try to make the case to come. 
Um, so certainly if you don't have authority and uh, without support in terms of telling people to be there, um, you can ask questions like what could possibly be more important than spending two days solving, you know, one of the most important questions facing our customers or, you know, our uh, existence as an organization. The other thing that we advise is because seniority does matter, trying to find a, a senior champion who can um, say some words at the beginning of, of your group getting together, um, who is willing to put their name on the invitation and say, this is important to the organization and we ask you to do whatever you can to be there. Um, you know, that's important as well. And once you start to get people who are coming, showing others the eclectic mix of people is very compelling to people. And the fact that, again, I've been handpicked to join this group uh, creates a lot of doubt in people's minds about whether this is just another meeting they can skip. David, to what extent does power now lay in the ability to find meaning in the noise? And what are the two levers identified in your book for how a leader can eliminate the noise? Yeah, I think anybody listening is familiar with the kinds of noise, um, the, the abundance of data and information and knowledge that's available to everyone, um, and increasingly the, the question of what's real and what's not real, that's all part of the noise. Um, and the other, the other type of noise we talk about um, and that we've certainly seen leaders struggling with is um, the noise that gets created when assumptions are made about the meaning of words that people are using. And so the, the two levers that we talk about in the book, um, one is sort of the baseline data and information and knowledge, maybe case studies, the baseline stuff that gets people to the same starting point for a conversation. So, you know, anything more than that, that, you know, is potentially wrong or potentially introduces bias, we say, you know, don't, don't um, use that to, to eliminate noise, you're creating noise. Um, but what are the basic facts? Again, you're bringing together a high variety group. That means they don't live in the same worlds. What are the basic facts people need so that they're on equal footing as they start the conversation? So again, baseline data, that's one of the levers. Um, the, the second is getting at this language issue. And I think in the book, we illustrate it by talking about a group of engineers. If you, if you bring together a group of engineers who all work together on the same project in the same building and all basically have the same engineering degree, they can, um, they can vocalize, you know, two pages worth of meaning in a word because they all speak the same language. But as soon as you start to introduce other perspectives and other backgrounds and non-engineers into the conversation, everybody needs to slow down so that they can uh, have a basic understanding of what, what the meaning is of the things people are saying. So again, that second lever is doing what you can to equip people to speak each other's language. And there's only so much you can do with glossaries, et cetera, beforehand. It really is about forcing people when they're together to slow down and take their time as they wade into the conversation so they can really align on definitions and meaning before they start talking about answers. How can one translate clarity and insight into action? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. 
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with David Benjamin, co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. Now, David, we're on step six of your uh, approach to cracking complexity, and that is probably the most time-consuming step and probably the toughest one to, to achieve is agreeing on the right agenda forward. What are some of the exercises groups can pursue in this area, and what is the curse of the preset agenda? So first of all, I'd say that um, this is so critical and, and very much contrary to conventional thinking that you should approach a meeting without an agenda. Um, because in sort of standard meetings, the, the prevailing wisdom is you want to send out to people, um, you know, here's what we're going to talk about and here's what we're going to accomplish in this meeting and it's going to be an hour and it's going to take 10 minutes on this and 15 minutes on that. But when you're dealing with complexity, the agenda easily, if it's preset, easily undercuts the variety, the whole point of convening a high variety group. The point of convening a high variety group is that you don't know what you don't know. And only collectively will the people you're bringing together um, know what they need to talk about to answer your question. So after you've taken such, such pains to articulate a great question, if you preset the agenda, you might as well not have that question. It might as well not be open. So it's very important to get the group to set their own agenda. And in fact, um, I'll mention now that there's also this notion of the curse of the preset agenda that we talk about in the book. And just very simply, what that means is when you preset the agenda, um, a, a good clerk or a good secretary can write the meeting, uh, the meeting minutes before the meeting happens. And I know that when I say that in front of groups, uh, people nod guiltily and say, I've done that before. So again, how do you set the agenda? Well, you've got all these people here. They're all coming in with perspectives and experiences and knowledge and, and things they sense and things they've absorbed and thought about and things they've tried. First thing you do is you have them capture all of that or as much of that as possible onto, we use sticky notes, um, but have them spend some quiet time just getting their thoughts to paper before they start losing their own thoughts in conversation with others. Having done that, you will very quickly see when you put all those things in front of everybody that there are clusters, very obvious clusters of thematically similar statements that people have written down. Um, they might be opposing views on the same thing, but they're both talking about talent management or they're both talking about 
you know, a, 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 what a competitor is doing or whatever the case is. So you have them cluster it and you have them familiarize themselves with everything that's been said by others and you build clusters. And now the clusters begin to show you hints of what belongs in the agenda, but you probably have far too many clusters to talk about. So what we actually do in a third step for agenda setting is have the group collectively look at all the clusters and now go through the process together of combining things into bigger themes or tucking some of the clusters into other clusters with time pressure and a finite number of topics to land on pushing them to agree on what matters most and, and how to make best sense of the things they need to talk about to answer the question. What's, what's possibly um, non-intuitive about all that is that it's so worth the time. We say, uh, depending on how long you're getting people together, 10 to 15% of the overall time is, is worth spending on setting the agenda because it gets people beginning to speak the same language. It gets them set up to talk about the right things. And it also shows them that this is going to be a very, very different kind of conversation with them in control, not being controlled by the convener. But David, what do you mean by engineering serendipity and how do forced collisions factor into this process and what can a leader do to manage such collisions? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start by pointing out that when we say collisions, um, we mean something different from interactions. So collisions are abrupt and weighty and, you know, they can be explosive and you certainly should expect um, unusual results when you're talking about collisions versus sort of standard interactions. So when we're talking about co collisions and putting people on a collision course, we want them bumping into each other we want them talking directly to each other, not through an intermediary. Um, we found that the best collisions happened when sometimes you are forced to listen and can't respond um, in the moment to what someone else is saying, and you're not allowed to initiate new thoughts. You're, you're there to listen to what someone else is saying and challenge or critique what they're saying. And other times, even more extreme than that, you know, in these collisions, you, your, your job is to be a witness to the collision, to observe it happening, um, but not, not uh, contribute anything at all. All of those things um, together sort of go into what we characterize as collisions and, and putting people on a collision course. Uh, when we talk about engineering serendipity, it's about orchestrating a high volume of those collisions uh, at very high speed in a way that gets everybody um, connecting directly with everybody else in a very short amount of time uh, because those happy accidents that we, you know, we expect when you have people from different domains, you know, talking to each other, et cetera, they, they, they happen and they might happen over a long period of time. If you set up, you know, a, a water cooler where people are meeting, you know, on breaks at work. But if you force a whole bunch of water cooler kind of experiences to happen all at once with all the right people there, um, that's what we call engineering serendipity. Why is iteration key to innovation? And my follow-up is, how does emergence factor in to step eight? So iteration, first of all, um, is really a key driver of, of innovation or new thinking and, and new answers. Um, because it, it's inevitable that when people first sit down together uh, to talk anything through, they've got, they've got their own preconceived notions in their head about, you know, what the answer is or, or you know, how should I contribute and what, what should I bring in? Um, 
And so you gotta you gotta hold people back from trying to get the answers um, until they've kind of level set on language, as I said earlier, but also till they've gotten in the habit of listening to each other, um, until they have reached a genuine understanding of where other people are coming from. So we actually use a first iteration um, to keep people from answering questions until they've done all that. And really the goal of a first iteration is to get to shared understanding to, to whatever degree is possible so that in a second iteration, people are ready to start having ideas. And again, holding people back from deciding anything and just producing ideas in a second iteration is absolutely key because otherwise you will shortcut ideas as people get excited about one thing and start to turn that into action. So only in the third iteration, with everybody comfortable with, with various roles they're playing in conversations, with who's in the room, with what the issues are, with some great ideas that have come before, with some of the um, connection points between things they're talking about being surfaced and revealed, only then are they ready um, to start deciding things. And so that happens in, in iteration three. And by the time you've, you've gotten people there in that, in that sort of stepwise fashion with all sorts of great conversations going on, um, you can put a lot of time pressure on people to come up with three great recommendations in round three and surprise them at how effective uh, they are at doing that and how great their answers are, but only by using iteration to get there. So the, you know, sort of the yin and yang of, of iteration we like to think of is emergence, which is as this sort of stepwise, um, you know, orchestrated, regimented way of making your way to answers is happening. What's also happening is people are having personal insights and, and small things and then big things are emerging for them. And you, you can't force emergence. Um, you can't time when emergence is going to happen. You can just create the conditions for emergence. And so what we talk about is the need to create those conditions, all the right people there, collisions, iteration, um, you know, a great question that people are passionate about, an agenda that they've set. Those are the conditions. And then what you can do, having created the conditions, is sit back and expect emergence um, and just pay attention specifically to what's emerging for yourself. Feed that to the group. See if that you know, resonates and turns into something bigger for the group. And again, encourage iteration to happen, expect it to happen, um, but not force it because it is, uh, again, more of the art versus the science of getting there. Uh, so David, I want to get to the uh, penetrating the mist and as you call it, and, and realizing some, some progress in this effort. How does one translate clarity and insights into action. And what are the three categories of action you identify in your book, Cracking Complexity? Yeah, so again, having, having um, worked with leaders doing this for years and years, there really are sort of three broad categories of um, the clarity that, that lands with groups. And um, to some degree, they correspond to what I was saying earlier about complicated versus complex. There will be a list of to-dos when you talk about anything and you work your way through with a, with a group about, you know, how do, we, how do we resolve this? What's our answer? Within that set of answers that the group will develop, there will be some complicated things. There will be some tasks that must be done and given to experts uh, or to somebody who's done that task many times before. That's the first category, things to do. And it's probably the most 
voluminous of the kinds of outcomes you get. Um, the, the real gold dust that you, you come out of um, the formula with, though, I put in the second category of things to try. Uh, and basically, when you understand complexity theory, and this is reflected in many methods that are out there, the, the way that you, you know, behave in an agile way and find great answers and innovate is to try things. And if they fail, they fail and you learn from that. If they succeed, you amplify them um, and learn from that as well. So identifying the, the breakthroughs that are the things you need to try, uh, they seem like the big ideas, they seem like the game changers, but let's try them out. That's the second category, the things to try. And if you only come away with two or three big things to try, um, that's an enormous win. And, and, you know, and any of those things might be the game changers you're looking for. So the third category, uh, and this happens and it's completely natural, is you've gone into um, complexity. There was a lot hidden that you didn't see going into that. Um, the third category are the new complexities that have been revealed to you. So you may go into a growth question um, with lots of clarity of things to do and things to try, but you may also realize, wow, uh, we have a talent development challenge in our organization, and that's the next complexity we have to deal with. So again, it's the things to do, the things to try, and it's the further complexities that have been revealed. And the nice thing about the formula is having revealed those things, you now have um, the capability of getting after those newly revealed complexities. How can you crack complexity to help you solve smaller, more everyday complex challenges? We will ask David Benjamin, co-author of Cracking Complexity, when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join him each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with David Benjamin, co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. David, why is the traditional hub-and-spoke model of problem-solving ineffective when tackling complexity? And what are some of the costs of applying this model to complex challenges? So the traditional hub-and-spoke model is an excellent model for solving complicated things. Uh, basically, you have an expert, you put the expert at the hub, and you have the expert talk to everybody that they need to talk to in order to configure the solution in the way that the expert knows how to configure it. 
um, so that it works in whatever environment it's, it's being delivered into. So it's a very good model for that. Where it breaks down is when it's used as the model for tackling complexity. And that's because, um, first of all, it's slow and linear in nature to interview people or groups sort of one at a time in sequence. Um, secondly, more importantly, everything, again, it's, there's a recognition of the need for variety in that model, but all that variety is filtered through a central hub. And whether that's an outside consulting team or an inside uh, task force, you're taking, let's say, 40 people's worth of variety and having six people um, act as the filter. So that's, um, that is contrary to the law of requisite variety. And thirdly, um, and I'd say most importantly, now that I think about it, is that the people who are involved are not interacting directly with each other. So let's say you've got a silo problem in your organization. Um, a, a traditional consulting team is great at navigating the silos and interviewing who they need to interview, but they don't break the silos. They don't get people from the silos interacting directly with each other. So when those um, exercises are done, the silos are still standing. But if you connect people directly with each other, um, if you have them co-create the answers, if you have them having to deal with each other directly and spend time understanding perspectives um, and really learn what's going on in the other silos and apply that learning and then work across silos uh, to find solutions, that's a completely different dynamic. Um, and everything that, that I've talked about, everything that um, the leaders who've adopted the formula have found um, gets them to the point where people co-creating together um, high variety, crossing, you know, all sorts of different dimensions of the organization, having found answers, they will execute, they will believe, they will lead, they will take ownership, they will take accountability, um, and they will act as a network that, that sustains itself afterwards in uh, securing execution. And that just doesn't happen when you hub and spoke people, when they aren't connected together and when they don't really have a sense of creating the answer, they just feel like information's been pulled to them and, uh, sorry, pulled from them and applied by someone else. So, David, how can you crack complexity to help you solve smaller, more everyday complex challenges? Um, it, it's actually interesting. One of the things that we've observed as people have given us feedback on the book is that um, they're finding value in the steps themselves. Um, not necessarily needing to execute step one through 10 to find value. So for example, um, I know several people who've started writing down a question before they go into any kind of, you know, team or committee or meeting um, to try to, to try to talk something through. So just the value of writing a question. Um, so I have become convinced by people who've told me that as you sort of look at the, the steps on their own, um, you can you can adopt things that will give you better meetings, that will make you a more effective leader or coach um, or problem solver. But the other thing I would say is we've also observed over time that um, you can get value as an individual on, on a challenge you're facing, even a personal challenge, um, just by applying some of the notions, again, like writing a question. I think the most powerful and eye-opening um, uh, sort of step or, or bit of insight from the formula, you know, I've got to make a decision about my career. 
Uh, I've got to make a decision about, you know, where I'm going to set up my family, where, where we're going to live, whatever, whatever it is. Um, if you think through variety and really think through the 12 zones and the characteristics about who you would include, who you would consult, um, you know, whether that's on a chat room or by having people over for dinner or whatever that is, uh, you can gain a lot of insight. And, and to the extent that the, the formula as a whole can be applied, we've even see pe seen people take a key decision point in their lives. Um, and again, working with us, you know, with our guidance, setting up steps one through 10 to bring together a broad variety of people and answer a question like, you know, what do I do next, given that, you know, here's what I want to achieve, here's what I've got as personal assets and uh, capabilities, um, but I don't know what to do, you know, help me out. And that kind of question with the right variety people where people are, again, colliding directly, et cetera, et cetera, um, has driven some really insightful answers to the people who've done that. So, David, as we close, how can folks get a copy of your book? Uh, all the usual places, Amazon.com, um, Barnes & Nobles, et cetera. Um, they can also come to our website, crackingcomplexity.com, and click a link there to, to order their book. And I think several platforms are, are there. And I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn or uh, Twitter. Um, Twitter handle is uh, ComplexityDB. And LinkedIn, please look me up, David Benjamin. So thank you, David, for being on the show. It's great to have you. Uh, it was a wonderful book, great read, Cracking Complexity. Thank you. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, with David Benjamin, co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.